What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. A whistleblower allegedly providing highly credible information about President Biden being involved in a criminal scheme. Lawmakers now say the FBI has documents confirming those claims. A Democratic memo is levying some tough charges against Representative James Comer. The brouhaha revolves around classified documents and a former assistant to President Biden. A Michigan lawmaker has come under fire. She allegedly signed a hush deal helping a tech company backed by the Chinese Communist Party. Former President Trump says if he was president, he'd end the Ukraine war in 24 hours. Find out what he says about how he'd do it and what he thinks his chances are in 2024. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. We start with some breaking news today. Four members of the Proud Boys have been convicted for their roles in the January 6th breach of the U.S. Capitol. Jurors found Enrique Tarrio, Ethan Nordin, Joe Biggs, and Zachary Real guilty of seditious conspiracy, which carries a prison sentence of up to 20 years. Those four defendants were also convicted of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, along with obstruction of an official proceeding and obstruction of a law enforcement officer, putting additional decades in prison in play. Tario was convicted despite not being in Washington on January 6th. House Republicans are issuing a subpoena for the FBI. The lawmakers say the Bureau has documents linking President Biden to a criminal scheme. Here are the details. The House Oversight Committee on Wednesday subpoenaed the FBI. House Republicans say a whistleblower linked President Biden to a criminal scheme. The scheme allegedly involved money for policy decisions while he was the vice president. The committee wrote a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray, stating that it has come to our attention that the Department of Justice and the FBI possess an unclassified FD-1023 form that describes an alleged criminal scheme involving then-Vice President Biden in a foreign national relating to the exchange of money for policy decisions. The subpoena says the FBI now must produce all FD-1023 forms that were created in June 2020, including the word Biden. Lawmakers didn't elaborate on what those alleged policy decisions were or how much money was allegedly provided, if any. The White House hasn't yet publicly commented on the matter. Two months ago, NTD's Iris Tao asked President Biden about claims that a Hunter Biden associate transferred $1 million to the Biden family several years ago. Republicans had alleged that money was wired to the family associate via a Chinese state-run company. Any reaction to how she'll be feel memo about your family dealing, sir? Yes, you're um, revealing in Wednesday's letter, lawmakers say the document they're seeking includes a precise description of how the alleged criminal scheme was employed, as well as its purpose. The FBI told the Epic Times that it received the subpoena but has no additional comment. Racism, xenophobia, distortion of the truth. A Democratic memo makes some weighty allegations against Representative James Comer. It all centers on classified documents and President Biden's former executive assistant, Kathy Chung. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the details of the memo and what both sides have to say about it. The May 3rd Democratic memo alleges that House Oversight Chair James Comer distorted comments from an interview last month on classified documents with former Biden executive assistant Kathy Chung. The memo points out that Chung served as assistant to the vice president during the final four years of the Obama-Biden administration. But on Fox News, Comer said, uh, We know from text messages and emails she got the job to help uh, with uh, the Biden family and moving documents at the recommendation of Hunter Biden. Chung's attorney wrote Comer reminding him that Chung was hired as an assistant to the vice president responsible for office affairs and not for the purpose of helping with moving documents. The memo says Republican committee staff admitted that Comer misspoke during the interview but failed to offer an apology on his behalf. The memo from Representative Jamie Raskin also says that the interview shows that Chung did not identify any classified documents in the materials she handled. 
Chung says she didn't think any classified documents were in the boxes she packed at the end of Biden's stint as vice president, but that she didn't double-check that fact. Raskin asserts that Comer spread baseless, xenophobic, and racist conspiracy theories about Chung. He cited comments Comer made during media interviews. Comer told Newsmax's Jen Pellegrino that the Oversight Committee was investigating Chung's possible ties to the CCP. He made similar comments on Fox News, saying his committee was looking into any connections linking Chung with the CCP. A House Oversight Committee spokesperson responded to the memo, saying, Once again, Ranking Member Raskin is playing defense lawyer for President Biden instead of engaging in oversight of this administration. While the Democrats attempt to distract from the facts, the committee will keep pressing forward with this investigation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The National Republican Senatorial Committee released a new ad blasting Michigan lawmaker Alyssa Slotkin. The congresswoman was found to have signed a hush agreement linked to a Beijing-backed battery company and to have helped keep the project out of the public eye. Here's more. Can we trust a politician who makes secret business deals with companies backed by the Chinese Communist Party? Of course not. But that's what Alyssa Slotkin did. The ad accuses Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of covering up deals with Communist China. The company in question is called Goshen, a subsidiary of Goshen High Tech. It's based in Shenzhen, China's southern metropolis. Last year, Goshen proposed setting up a $2.4 billion electric vehicle battery plant in Grand Rapids, Michigan. A spokesperson confirmed new details to Fox News in April that Slotkin signed a non-disclosure agreement over closed-door discussions about the Goshen project. Those talks, in Slotkin's words, aim to understand the project's impact and if there were ways to help from the federal level. At the same time, the Goshen plant has been facing intense scrutiny for its direct ties to Beijing. The company's bylaws require it to carry out Communist Party activities in accordance with the Constitution of the Communist Party of China. In a March interview with Tucker Carlson tonight, former candidate for Michigan Governor Tudor Dixon shared her concerns. It clearly states it has to be the Chinese Communist Party setting up in the middle of the country. You have a lot of opportunity to spy on the United States if you're right in the center of the country. And they're writing, clearly stating that they are spying on the United States. Joseph Sella, former U.S. ambassador to Fiji, noted Slotkin's background as a former CIA analyst and Defense Department official. He told Fox News that Slotkin knew state officials were warned not to sign deals with companies linked to Beijing. She knows well the grave national security threat that the PRC uh, presents to the CCP, and it's unconscionable that she would even begin to think about signing a binding and uh, punitive non-disclosure agreement with the state of Michigan uh, in order to bring a PRC-based and a CCP-tied manufacturer to uh, the heartland of Michigan. Sella described the agreement with China as subnational incursion. They're a national security threat, and it's uh, a toe in the door for future espionage uh, operations to happen, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks with the uh, uh, six police stations that were found and the 40 uh, police agents uh, of the PRC and the CCP that were arrested in New York. Slotkin's office declined to comment further on the non-disclosure deal. Meanwhile, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has pushed for $715 million in incentives for the Goshen proposal. That plan includes $175 million in taxpayer funds, greenlit by a Michigan Senate committee last month, plus a 30-year tax break estimated at $540 million. The funding is part of the Biden administration's efforts to bring electric vehicle production back to America. And Goshen isn't the only beneficiary in Michigan. Ford is also partnering with Chinese battery maker Cattle to build another battery factory in the state. That project is on track to get nearly $1 billion under the Inflation Reduction Act, since the plant will be owned by a U.S. company. Altogether, the two battery plants will garner close to $2 billion in subsidies from the state of Michigan. Peter Hoekstra, former U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands, sounded a warning about the proposals. He said the U.S. is enriching China's battery industry at the expense of opportunities for American companies and for companies in allied nations. I think there are lots of people in America, there are lots of people and companies in countries that are allied with us, whether it's in Europe, whether it's uh, Korea or Japan or Australia, that are more than willing to put together proposals to take advantage of that one to two billion dollars. Hoekstra cautioned that Chinese companies could take advantage of loopholes in the Inflation Reduction Act. 
court said, well, you know, <clears throat> we're not partnering with them. We're, the, we're just licensing their technology. Uh, that's to get around loop. That's around trying to get around the rules and find a loophole that allows them to become eligible today. Hoekstra formed the Michigan-China Economic and Security Review Group to look into Chinese investment in the U.S. The panel suspects that hush deals involving Goshen might violate the Foreign Agents Registration Act. The rule requires certain disclosures of foreign-linked entities. The panel has asked the DOJ to investigate. From politics to the job market, worries of AI replacing jobs in the entertainment industry, thousands of screenwriters fear their livelihoods are now on an uncertain path. Protests against AI have started. Are their jobs really at risk? To learn more, we go to Business News with Don Ma. All right, thanks, Kevin. Screenwriters now are worried about AI taking over their jobs. More than 11,000 film and TV writers went out on strike this week, actually. The Writers Guild of America is leading the protest. And here to talk to me about AI's potential to replace certain jobs is Alexander de Ritter, co-founder of Inc. So, you know, I've used programs like ChatGPT, and it does seem to me that writers potentially could be at some risk of being replaced. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, that's right. However, the GPT that consumers are mostly familiar with uh, does not really represent that big of a threat at this point. Um, the version that is currently in alpha testing and has uh, more limited access, well, that version uh, provides much larger context length. And context length is where it's really all about. So, for example, if you would ask it to create a new episode of Friends, uh, the GPT model may have encountered what Friends is, may have read a few scripts. However, what if you could load all of Friends episodes that were ever created into a context window and it could literally understand every little fact and nuance of every relationship and style of communication that has ever been uh, used in that show. So this is what we're talking about with, uh, with potential displacement in, um, in, in, in content writing for, uh, for brands and the franchises. Uh, the largest version of GPT-4 can process approximately 50 pages of context. However, that is not yet everything you might need for an entire franchise. You may need hundreds of pages and so uh there are um there are solutions in the works uh of uh, transformer architectures that might have unlimited context windows in the future and there are also going to be uh, uh intermediate solutions with vector databases and memory that will also overcome that problem it seems to me if we do reach that point i mean it seems like ai could just write the whole script i mean are writers' jobs at risk then? Yes, well, they are at risk. Um, and and people, people sometimes think about this not entirely in the right way. So let me reframe it. Uh, when we think, is our job at risk, we sometimes think, should an AI be capable of doing everything a human being can for our job to be at risk? And the answer is no. AI does not need to be that good. To, to put a job at risk. Um, all AI needs to do is make an, a human being 10 times more efficient at doing their job to put nine of their colleagues' jobs at risk. And so if it accelerates a human being's job uh, an, an, a factor of times to, to create faster, then a company right in, in, a, um, in a capitalist society will prioritize uh, resources and if we notice we don't need that many resources for that type of job then yes there is a job risk even if the AI is individually not as capable as a human well all right thank you so much today for this uh, in-depth discussion Alex pleasure having you on glad to be here now, what the Writers Guild of America wants is that its collective bargaining contract guarantees that AI won't write or rewrite any literary material and AI won't be used as source material 
And finally, union-covered materials won't be used to train AI. Back to you, Kevin. All right. Well, if you're concerned about the safety of your money in the bank, you're not alone. According to a new Gallup poll, nearly half of Americans say they are concerned about the money they have in financial institutions. 19% are very worried, and another 29% are moderately worried. These findings are similar to 2008, when Gallup last surveyed this question during the global financial crisis. Despite a string of bank failures in recent weeks, U.S. officials say the industry overall remains strong. Next, we look at state and federal actions in response to the influx of illegal immigrants coming into the U.S. The Texas governor is taking matters into his own hands again, and Title 42 is coming to an end with differing views on the policy. Earlier, I spoke with an immigration expert to learn more. Have a listen. Please welcome Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. Todd, thanks for coming on to discuss this important issue. Great to be here. I want to talk about Texas Governor Greg Abbott's tedious safety inspections for these trucks on the bridge from Matamoros to Brownsville. This is controversial, but it follows Tamaulipas authorities allowing tens of thousands of migrants to cross the Rio Grande into the United States. It's hurting Texas and Mexican businesses. It's spoiled products. Even there have been blockades for Mexican truck drivers on the other side in the past. Is there a way for Governor Abbott to stem this immigration surge in a way that carries less political risk? Not really when it comes to uh, immigration, to human beings coming over the border. Uh, the, the governor just doesn't have the legal standing to, to round them up and do anything with them at all. So what he's doing with the bridges is sort of a uh, out-of-the-box way of pressuring the Mexican governments to do it, to do what uh, maybe what the Biden administration ought to be doing. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the Trump administration used the threat of uh, economic uh, pain to have them stop immigrants at their southern border. They deployed National Guard troops. They did a variety of things. It worked fairly well. I want to talk about Title 42. Many are expecting its end to be the beginning of a major immigration policy shift. The GOP says it's an effective border control measure and they want to codify it to law progressives are saying that it blocks migrants from seeking asylum. Now, Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar, he says it's ineffective as deportees can just come right back in, whereas under Title VIII, there could be up to a 20-year ban after they've been deported. Biden says we're going to go back to Title VIII. What do you make of all this? Well, the, the replacement for Title 42 is Title VIII expedited removal. The problem with expedited removal using it the way they say they're gonna use it is that they have punched it full of loopholes. So when you come to the border uh, and you are placed in expedited removal proceedings, which is what's supposed to happen, all you have to do is say, I declare asylum. And you put that whole thing on ice. Uh, now they're saying that they're gonna surge asylum officers to do fast track reviews uh, of claims. Uh, but the problem is that when they get declined, they can appeal. These are rebuttable, and uh, that then starts the clock ticking. And when you have tens of thousands of people who all have clocks ticking and just so much bed space, you have to release them. And I think the immigrants and the immigrant advocates and their champions are counting on that uh, to, to force the administration to just abandon the whole process. Uh, as people would just flood in. The other thing is that the new system entirely exempts unaccompanied minors. Uh, when we saw the administration exempt unaccompanied minors from Title 42, 350,000 came in, the most ever in history by far. Uh, that flow of unaccompanied minors will continue. And one other thing, uh, the new policy says it will respect the Flores settlement. That is a massive loophole uh, where family units can come in and they can't be detained for longer than 20 days. The facilities fill up very quickly and they have to release all the family units. Plus, they already said we're not going to detain any family units for any amount of time. 
So family units will just pour in under the Flores settlement, uh, like we saw in 2018, 2019, and what we've seen for the last two years, too. They exempted family units from Title 42 on Inauguration Day, and we've seen like a couple million of them now. So I think that we're just going to see this huge flood of unaccompanied minors, family units, and anybody else who wants to appeal to the cows come home. Well, Todd, thanks for helping us make sense of these nuances of the vetting process. The U.S. is sending 1,500 troops to the southern border. Many are calling this a tactic for the Biden administration to gain political points. There have been millions of illegal crossers coming into the country. This is the third year of this trend. What is your reaction to this? Well, we've had troops down there for years and years. Uh, it's just there's nothing new at all. In fact, it's it's old. It's about the oldest thing that there is. We know that uh, military uh, that, that the soldiers are used for you know administrative duties for spotting and scoping. And in this case, it's not going to be any different. They're just trying to um, they, they anticipate a massive flood. Uh, of releases, and what they want to do is have enough personnel to get them off the border and into the interior fast so that TV cameras can't see these big buildups, these big encampments. The optics do play a big role in this. Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, it is great to have you with us. Thank you. Former President Trump said he would end the Russia-Ukraine war within 24 hours if he were still president. This was during an interview with British TV channel GB News. So if I were president, and I say this, I will end that war in one day. It'll take 24 hours. I know Zelensky well. I know Putin well. That deal would be easy. A lot of it has to do with the money. A lot of it has to do with the military, you know, that yeah. we're giving. But I would get that deal done within 24 hours. Trump said he would use personal ties with leaders on both sides of the war to broker the deal. Trump is now holding a strong lead in polls over GOP rivals. Interviewer Nigel Farage asked him if he believes he could win the upcoming election. Trump said he has a very good chance. I think we have a very good chance. Uh, the economy is not good. I'll make it good. Everyone knows. You know, everyone knows. They even Democrats. They say, "Well, we agree that Putin would have never gone in. He would have." I told him, "You're not going in. Putin would have never gone into Ukraine. President Xi of China would never even be talking about Taiwan." We had that conversation strongly. Trump said he would help ease tensions with countries like China, North Korea, and Iran. He also spoke of his record of turning the economy around and promised to quickly make America the greatest economy again. And speaking of Trump, his legal team got some unpleasant news. A New York Supreme Court judge on Wednesday tossed a 2021 lawsuit that the former president filed against the New York Times, its reporters, and his estranged niece, Mary Trump. The $100 million lawsuit accused them of a plot to obtain confidential and highly sensitive records. The case centered around the outlet's 2018 reporting about the former president's tax records. Trump alleged that journalists with the New York Times relentlessly sought out Trump's niece and convinced her to smuggle Trump's records out of her attorney's office and turn them over to the newspaper. A New York judge is set to hear arguments about a protective order in former President Trump's criminal case today. This is the first hearing since Trump pleaded not guilty to falsifying business records with the intent to conceal a hush money payment. The hearing is about whether to restrict what Trump can say about the case publicly. His attorneys argue that as a 2024 presidential candidate, Trump should have the ability to defend himself against the charges while campaigning. This is the first of several pre-trial steps in the case. The official trial is not expected to start until next year. A new bill would give Texas the option to rerun elections in the state's most populous county if a ballot paper shortage occurs. The bill would give the Texas Secretary of State the authority to order a new election if 2% or more of the polling places in Harris County run out of ballots for more than an hour after calling for a restock. Harris County was the target of a two-month audit following problems that occurred during the 2022 midterm elections. An audit found very serious issues in the handling of electronic media, but auditors did not say fraud occurred. Officials cited media reports saying a little over 3% of locations in the county had ballot issues on election day. 
Florida lawmakers yesterday passed a bill to prohibit people from using public restrooms that don't align with their birth gender. The bill, known as the Safety in Private Spaces Act, passed both the State House and Senate. Specifically, anyone 18 or older who uses public restrooms or changing facilities of the other sex could be charged with a second-degree misdemeanor. This includes locker rooms or shower rooms. It only applies to government buildings and schools, colleges, and detention centers. The bill says this is to maintain public safety, decency, and decorum. It also includes exceptions for chaperoning a child, an elderly person, or an individual with a disability, as well as for medical assistance, maintenance, and inspections. It also does not ban unisex restrooms, which either gender could still use. The transgender child of Democrat Catherine Clark, minority whip in the House of Representatives, is sentenced to one year of probation. That's after pleading not guilty to the charges. Boston police identified Jared Dowell, who now goes by Riley Dowell, for involvement in a violent protest in January and allegedly spray-painting a monument and assaulting a police officer. Dowell was ultimately charged with assault and battery on a police officer, vandalizing property, vandalizing a historic marker monument, and resisting arrest. According to local news, Dowell also must write a letter of apology to the officer who was reportedly assaulted. And coming up, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he is hopeful he can visit China this year. He canceled an earlier trip over the Chinese spy balloon incident. NATO plans an unprecedented move with the aim of countering the Chinese Communist regime. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. On Wednesday, Senate Democrats announced a new effort to counter China. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has asked several committee chairs to work with their Republican counterparts to craft bipartisan legislation. The areas of focus include limiting the flow of advanced technology to China, limiting investment in the Chinese regime, finding alternatives to China's attempts to exert its economic influence, and working with allies to prevent conflict with Taiwan. Time's not on our side. The Xi regime is working every day to catch up and surpass the United States. There is no reason our two parties here in the Congress and in the Senate can't come together and send a strong message to the Chinese government that we're united in in this pressing national security effort and we are committed to maintaining America's lead in the future. In the last two years, the Senate has come together to pass two bills aimed at chipping away at China's economic influence, including the CHIPS Act, which invested in semiconductor chip manufacturing in the U.S. The U.S. Secretary of State addresses the future of the U.S.-China relationship. He wants to stay engaged with the Chinese regime. He says communication will help avoid confrontation. We're talking about China. You had a trip that was scheduled to China that you postponed because of the Chinese spy balloon. And I have to ask you, in a period where there seems to be some warming of relations between the United States, the beginning of of a thaw, are you hopeful that you may be able to reschedule that trip this year? Uh, I am. And I think it's uh, important, as President Biden laid out uh, in in Bali when he was with President Xi at the end of last year, that we um, reestablish regular lines of communication uh, at all levels and across our government. Uh, We're in a competition with China. There's no secret about that. But we have a strong interest in trying to make sure that that competition doesn't veer into conflict. Blinken canceled the planned trip in February. He said he would pursue a visit to China when conditions are right. He also added that the goal is not to contain China or engage in a new Cold War. In April, the Financial Times reported that it was the Chinese regime that refused to let Blinken reschedule his Beijing trip. The regime was concerned that the FBI would release the results of an investigation into the downed spy balloon and wasn't sure what President Biden would do with the information. The article said the information came from four unnamed sources. NATO could be planning to open an office in the Asia-Pacific region. It would be an unprecedented move for the military alliance as it looks at more threats to global stability. The alliance will reportedly open a one-person liaison office in Tokyo. Its purpose is to counter the threat of China's communist regime. 
Nikkei Asia reported that the regional office would allow NATO to conduct consultations with key Asia-Pacific partners, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea, and act as a point of contact with other nations in the region. Leaders of the four Asia-Pacific partner countries were invited to NATO's Leaders' Summit for the first time last year and are again expected to attend this year's event. NATO's 2022 strategy document also highlighted the threat of the Chinese Communist regime as a priority for the first time. The 2023 World Freedom Press Index has seen China drop down to the second lowest ranking, just one above North Korea. The Chinese regime conducts a far-reaching campaign of repression against journalists in China and prevents free access to information. But recent years have seen it export its system to other countries. More on this from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. China has dropped down to one of the lowest World Freedom Press Index rankings, coming second only to North Korea. It's the world's biggest jailer of journalists and one of the biggest exporters of propaganda content. But China's media control efforts aren't limited to its own borders. Fiona O'Brien, the UK Director for Reporters Without Borders, said China is seeking to export its system abroad. China's made no secret of its ambition to create a new media world order, to change the way that media ecosystems work. And Hong Kong is a very good example of that. What China has done in Hong Kong is to rip up the British Sino Treaty um, that was arranged in, 19, in the 1980s pre-handover, and in complete disregard for that, to trample on its obligations to press freedom. Um, its laws are extraordinarily restrictive, and its ambition is to export the model that it currently uses in China to other territories, including Hong Kong. Since Beijing introduced the national security law in mid-2020, the situation in Hong Kong has declined dramatically. The law means authorities can punish people for vaguely defined crimes, for things such as subversion, terrorism and collusion with foreign forces. But Beijing has the power to decide how the law is interpreted. Editor for BBC News Chinese, Howard Zhang, said a Chinese official called the law a hanging sword. When uh, the Chinese uh, government pushed out the uh, national security law, one of the officials did say, "This is we're not going to use it every day, but it will be like a hanging sword over your head. And uh, if you offend, you'll be punished by the full force of the law. He said that over the last five years, and in regards to press freedom, Hong Kong has gone from relatively free to strictly controlled. Business news and non-political news still has some freedom. But anything that's politically sensitive, and uh, I would say self-censorship is becoming a, a, a new norm. Most uh, journalists would know what not to say, almost becoming uh, as sensitive as uh, mainland colleagues. And uh, that's the uh, direct impression I have every time I visit Hong Kong now. During the 2019 Hong Kong protests, hundreds of journalists were detained, indicted and were victims of police violence. In 2021, a dozen journalists were arrested in a new wave of arrests, the same year that two major independent news outlets were forcefully shut down. More than five others chose to shut down too due to concerns around risk. O'Brien said the toolkit used by oppressive regimes is expanding and largely linked with advances in technology. Vietnam brought in um, internet laws which were mirroring those of China a few years ago. There's a, a, a training center for journalists right on the border with Vietnam. So China is very much trying to propel itself through the region and beyond. She added that the international community needs to take measure of what's happening and work together with other like-minded nations to combat China's ambitions before it's too late. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Police in Canada say this man sold poison online. His name is Kenneth Law, and the substance he's accused of selling is sodium nitrate. Even though it's a common food additive, it's also lethal in large doses. Investigators say he sold it to people at risk of self-harm, and two of them near Toronto died. He's being charged with counseling or aiding suicide. Law allegedly shipped packages containing the substance to more than 40 countries and could face additional charges. From North America to Asia, the military government in Burma, also known as Myanmar, freed over 2,000 prisoners yesterday, among them a journalist and political detainees. Here's the story. Video from state television MRTV showed dozens of people leaving prisons. 
Among them, according to activists and media, a journalist and numerous political detainees. Since overthrowing an elected government in 2021, Myanmar's military has detained at least 17,000 opponents, according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, the AAPP. They say about 3,500 have been killed by security forces. MRTV said the prisoners convicted of incitement were pardoned to mark a Buddhist holiday and were warned against reoffending. The AAPP say many of those released were already close to finishing their sentences. The military says it is fighting, quote, terrorists. But many of the junta's opponents were charged under a law prohibiting incitement, the definition of which has been expanded and used against people urging civil servants to go on strike. Among the most prominent political prisoners is ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi, who is serving 33 years in prison for a multitude of offenses she says were trumped up. Staying here, a missing camera recorded the final moments of Japanese reporter Kenji Nagai. He was killed 15 years ago in Burma while covering an anti-government protest. His family released the unseen footage to the public. These protests began as marches against rising fuel prices, but in 2007, they grew into large-scale demonstrations. Nagai was the first foreign victim of these conflicts. A photo obtained earlier shows the journalist shot down on the street while a soldier from the Burmese military held a gun at close range. Nagai's camera is the key to the murder. Progressive media outlet Democratic Voice of Burma acquired the device in 2021. The camera was returned to Nagai's sister on Wednesday. Clearly, from our point of view, no matter how we think of it, we think that it was a gunshot from close range. We would like for the truth to be clarified and to be made known. That is how we feel. Today's event is important and timely as a reminder that Myanmar's military has and continues to kill journalists with impunity. And the killings won't stop until Kenji's murder receives full justice. The footage was released at a meeting of the Foreign Correspondents Club of Thailand. Nagai's sister says she hopes the tragedy will turn public attention to Burma and raise awareness of the country's present situation. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, Russia is blaming the U.S. for planning an alleged drone attack on the Kremlin National Security Council official John Kirby denied the accusation, calling it a ludicrous claim. Fitch Rating Agency recently downgraded France's credit rating amid political deadlock and social unrest. We'll have more for you in just a minute. Moscow is now claiming that the U.S. was behind an alleged drone attack on the Kremlin. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov raised the allegation at a press briefing. He said Washington was choosing the targets and Ukraine was simply carrying out its plan. U.S. National Security Council official John Kirby rejected the allegations. I would just tell you Mr. Peskov's lying. I mean, that's obviously it's a ludicrous claim. The United States had nothing to do with this. We don't even know exactly what happened here, uh, Caitlin, but I can assure you the United States had, had no role in it whatsoever. The alleged attack took place early Wednesday morning. Footage showed two flying objects approaching the Kremlin. One exploded. Russia says electrical defenses countered the drones and that an investigation is still ongoing. Moscow said the attack sought to kill President Vladimir Putin, who wasn't in the Kremlin at the time. It also claimed that the U.S. often chooses the targets and means of attack for Ukraine. Russia said it reserves the right to retaliate, but didn't say what form that might take. Both the Netherlands and Belgium signaled strong support for Ukraine. The leaders of the two countries spoke during a news conference with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at The Hague. This is a war against freedom, democracy, and the rule of law in our part of the world. That's why we stand with Ukrainian people and why you can count on our unwavering support. It is now our help to uh, our turn to help Ukraine to get rid once again of a cruel and an illegal occupation. 
kind of occupation that our countries have endured during the Second World War as well. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte says Russia cannot win the war in Ukraine. He added that Russia must be held accountable for what he said were crimes of aggression and other war crimes, while Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo said the country is preparing a new package of military aid for Ukraine. Russia has stepped up attacks as Ukraine prepares for a counteroffensive to try to retake Russian-occupied land in the south and east. Russian shelling in the frontline southern region of Kherson killed at least 23 civilians yesterday. The U.S. government is using more taxpayer money to help Ukraine. The latest funds transfer amounts to $300 million for security and defense. The Department of Defense will send the country various weapons and ammunition. The new aid marks the Biden administration's 37th drawdown of equipment from Pentagon stocks. It brings total U.S. military aid to Ukraine to roughly $36 billion. Last month, GOP lawmakers raised concerns that U.S. aid to Ukraine risks further escalating the war and risks U.S. safety. They noted the U.S. is the war's largest financier in a letter to President Biden. Rating agency Fitch recently downgraded France's credit rating, citing political deadlock and social unrest. The French government said it will push ahead with reforms as it struggles to rein in high levels of debt. Entities France correspondent David Vives has the story. A small change with big stakes. Rating agency Fitch last week downgraded France's credit rating by one notch to AA-. This will affect the country's ability to borrow money on the capital markets. With the change, France drops out of the top 10 rated countries, which includes the United States, Germany, Australia and Netherlands. The agency justified its new rating with France's high level of debt. Fitch wrote that public finances, and in particular the high level of government debt, are a rating weakness. Fitch also revised up the country's outlook to stable from negative. Policy analyst Nicolas Lecaussin says the downgrading doesn't come as a surprise. If you carefully read the description of the Fitch rating, you can see very clearly that Fitch predicts an increase in the cost of servicing the country's debt in the years to come. So it's more than a warning, it's an observation. It's a very bad rating. A few days ago, Eurostat unveiled the figures. France is the champion of public expenditure almost 60% of GDP, and of social expenditure, almost 33% of GDP. It's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. France is really at the top of the list of countries that spend the most. It's the world champion. Le Cousin says the main reason for such a high level of public spending is the number of state employees. The public employees' payroll is constantly increasing. It never goes down. We have many more civil servants than other countries. You must realize that in France, there are practically 7 million people who live off public money. So officially, there are 5 million or so civil servants. So the state is getting into debt as it goes along. It's not just COVID. It's a spiral of debt that has not been stopped. The downgrading comes as a new blow to President Macron's government. While the government stuck to its pension reform, the agency notes that political deadlock and social movements pose a risk to Macron's reform agenda. It could also create pressure for a more expansionary fiscal policy or a reversal of previous reforms. Le Cossin says the violence at some protests seemed disproportionate with the content of the pension reform itself. In other countries, people work until they are 67 or even 69. And here we have just a small reform. We do not even introduce a capital-backed system, which exists in other countries. So if there is so much opposition to this small reform, then what will happen if Macron decides to reduce the number of civil servants? Other rating agencies, such as Moody's, haven't published new ratings yet on the country. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up on the edge of the Sahara Desert, the annual Nomads Festival keeps nomadic traditions alive. Over three days, the event welcomes local and international artists. And filmmakers in Kazakhstan try to keep a 3,000-year-old pastime alive. The activity helps students develop balance, accuracy, and coordination. Stay tuned for more on that in just a minute.
Good to have you back. On a lighter note for you, in Southeast Europe, workers on a solar energy farm are turning lawn mowing green. Instead of mowing machines, they're letting sheep munch on the grass around solar panels. In a small town in eastern Kosovo, a solar farm has more than 12,000 photovoltaic panels installed. A shepherd said the workers there realized it was hard to mow the fields around the panels, so they asked for his help. Now, more than 100 sheep and a few goats graze there twice a week. The sheep eat all kind of grass here, good or bad grass. They clean everything. We are all benefiting, me and them, solar farms owners. Kosovo has the fifth largest global reserves of lignite coal. Over 90% of its electricity comes from coal, with the rest from renewable sources. The country aims to phase out coal by 2050. On the edge of the Sahara Desert, the annual Nomads Festival celebrates traditions in nomadic life. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details in the event in Morocco. Over three days, the Nomads Festival welcomed local and international artists. The event featured several local traditions. This festival came back this year with a rich program of activities, such as exhibitions and activities all linked to nomadic life, such as the camel race and preparing then cooking bread loaves in the sand. Over centuries, camels have played an essential role in the daily life of the nomads. On top of providing meat and milk, the animals were also perfect for travel. It's thanks to camels that the Arab and Islamic culture was spread over the Sahara, from Eswera to Cairo, and Tangier to Timbuktu. For me, the role of the camel is endless. The camel keeps the nomads' heritage alive. Since the year 2000, it was made an intangible heritage by the UNESCO. Storytelling is another important part of nomadic culture in Morocco. Three storytellers from Mali, France, and Morocco captivated audiences with their tales. Nomads and the Moroccan society in general based the education of their families and children on storytelling. At night, the grandma used to gather her family to tell them stories she learned herself from her mother and grandmother. She would tell them stories full of strong messages. The festival also features international and Moroccan musicians. This year, an exiled nomadic artist from Mali performed. Another artist from Lebanon sang during the festival back in 2014. Moved by her first experience, this year she composed and sang a tribute to the festival itself. From my first visit here, I still remember all the beauty and hospitality of these people and the love for the simple things and love of life. This region is sending a message to the entire world in spite of globalization. Both artists and visitors at the Nomads Festival hope to preserve these traditions. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Some more interesting stories. A popular children's game in Kazakhstan is believed to have originated 3,000 years ago. Now filmmakers are hoping to revive the activity. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more for us. The Osik game is an ancient tradition in Kazakhstan. The rules of the game are simple. Players need to knock out one or several pieces out of the circle using their own Osik. Today, a group hopes to revive the outdoor activity with a film about the game. Osik Maniacs is due to come out this fall. It's part of our culture, part of our tradition. Not part, that's the wrong word. It's even the foundation, the basis from which everything begins, even when we, as children, when we do not understand anything. The Osik game is part of the school curriculum in Kazakhstan. Playing helps develop balance, accuracy, coordination, and motor skills. Through ASICs, dexterity, accuracy, stamina, and a sense of distance is developed. This all transfers into bow and arrow skills. When we get older, we get used to mounting horses at the age of five or six, and this all fits together when becoming a kokpar, a real warrior. The game was banned in Soviet times, but now the Federation of Asika II promotes it. In 2011, the rules were officially approved. Championships have been held in the Central Asian country since 2015. There are international competitions, too. The game of ASICs is a national sport, since now there are uniform rules that have been created by the ASICA II Federation in Kazakhstan, 
who have determined uniform rules. For example, in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, the diameter of the circle should be four meters. The distance from where they hit is four meters. Ossics were traditionally made of bone and marked with family symbols. For screenwriter Yurkin Gubashev, it's a game of nostalgia. The most important Ossik is the one that's thrown. It's called Saka, or beat. They are bigger than the others and colored bright. Whoever had the oldest beat was the coolest. It would cost the most from what I remember. There were situations when older boys would come and say, hey, give it to me now, and I would say no. The producers hope the film will revive the game's popularity among the younger generation. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A centuries-old tradition is being kept alive in northern New Mexico. Villagers there are reconstructing churches that were made out of adobe. Let's take a look. 400 years ago, missionaries began building adobe churches here in the small mountain communities. Efforts are now underway to restore these historic buildings. We're in the process of reconstructing a, an, an adobe building here um, that was built originally in 1780, and it's coming back to life this year. The chapels may look plain in appearance, but inside they are filled with elaborate altars. These villages are usually far from centers of religious and secular power, so locals set up their own church keepers, called Meyer Domos. Okay, the adobe it's, consists of sand, dirt, and straw, and water. We used the dirt from here, and uh, from there we just went with our mixture. It was uh, trial and error, pretty much. Today, these unique adobe churches are under threat. As populations decline, congregations shrink, and traditions are lost. Descendants of Meyer Domos are at the forefront of the preservation effort. This dirt all came out of that building. Everything had collapsed in there. So we brought all that dirt out here, including the old adobes, and so we're going to reconstitute it, put it back together. There are still about 500 Catholic mission churches in northern New Mexico. Groups like the Archdiocese's Catholic Foundation are also reaching out to protect them. Did you know it's National Day of Prayer? The U.S. Congress designated this day in 1952, asking people to turn to God in prayer and meditation. The National Day of Prayer is now held annually the first Thursday in May. The president signs a proclamation each year encouraging all Americans to pray on this day. Out of respect for different faiths, the day can be observed in various ways, but all are encouraged to take some time for spiritual reflection. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Music